Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right? Praise God for the rain. It occurred to me just the other day that I hadn't been on my mower in over two and a half months because everything was dead. Now it's almost November and I'll have to mow my lawn. Only in Texas, right? God's country. Oh, man, you got... (laughs) Or as I heard told the other day, United States of America, one Texas and 49 people trying to be like Texas, wherever states, envious of Texas. Kind of messed that up. Yes, I did. I heard you back there. See, it's not crowded. Your voice just kind of carries. But really, uh, all kidding aside, this is what preaching is supposed to be. It's not a one-way conversation. I'm not here giving a monologue. You are to speak back. You agree with it? You say amen? You say that's right? Or It's a two-way conversation because as, I, as I'm speaking, you're speaking to me, and God's speaking to all of us, myself included. I've been convicted by my own preaching at times. It does happen. The Millennial Kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Just to give you a heads up, we'll stop here in Revelation until the beginning of the new year. After, uh, next week, we'll start our three-week service, series on Thanksgiving and then followed by Christmas and into the new year. It's taken me almost two years now, and I'm about two chapters away from finishing the whole book. Uh, it's been a great learning experience. It has stretched me in ways I can't possibly imagine. And by the way, none of these lessons or sermons are comprehensive. There's more to be said but I don't have a lot of time to go through everything I possibly can. With that, there is a daily devotional that's printed by the Moody Bible Institute entitled Today in the Word. Now, this article was published in 1988. I do realize that's quite old. It was last century, but bear with me. In their article, they uh, presented a statement, or statistic really, from the Personnel Journal, which is an academic journal. They reported that this journal put out this incredible statistic. And it said, quote, Since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. In its study, the periodical discovered that of 3,530 years of recorded history, that's counting all the stuff before Christ that we can come up with, the B.C., I still call it B.C., not before Christ, not before Common Era, which is B.C., which you find a lot nowadays. So of that recorded history, 3,530 years of recorded history, only 286 years have seen peace. That's not just here at home, that's the world. Listen to this. Moreover, in excess of 8,000 peace treaties were made and broken. End of quote. Now, I know 1988 was quite some time ago, but look where we're at now. Look what's happening right now all over the world. And I know our sites are right now in the Middle East, what's happening there. But we've had wars and more wars and less peace. Can you imagine a time when there'll be no more war? There'll be no more killing assaults or abuse. Can you really imagine a time such as that? A day when there's no more hunger, no more hurt, no more corruption or fear or panic. And according to Scripture, 
a day just like that and more is coming. A day when Christ shall rule the earth and Satan shall have no control. Now our text this morning talks about a time like that. So let's look at our text this morning and see what it tells us about that. Verse 1. Saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, or the bottomless pit, and a great or heavy chain in his hand. Now the abyss is in some way distinct from the lake of fire. Now it's not a pleasant place to be, but not as catastrophic as a lake of fire. Now we know the ultimate destiny for Satan is the lake of fire. And the intention of the angel here is to grab Satan and bind him with chains, and lock him into the abyss. Now chains, we know about chains. Our prisoners nowadays can be locked in chains. You see someone going from a prison or a courtyard to prison, he'll be locked in shackles, his feet, his ankles, even handcuffs have a chain. Which begs the question, how can a spiritual being be bound with physical chains? You want the answer to that? I guess not. No one said anything. Well, there's no indication in the text about what kind of nature of chain this is. Therefore, the precise nature of it remains unknown. The text is silent. I just take it for its word that he will be bound with these heavy chains. Look at verse 2. He, the angel, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. Now, he's naming all these different names for him to make sure he establishes his identity. But his multiple names also consummate the evil of his being. The dragon emphasizes his fierceness and his cruelty. The serpent of old. Think of the Garden of Eden where he made his first appearance. The devil. That word means accuser. He's always hurling accusations and causes disruption. That's what he likes to do among churches. He makes accusations. He whispers in your ear. You know old so-and-so over there. He thinks he's better than you. And before you have look, look at it, he causes disruption. That's why it's so important for us to have spiritual discernment and to follow the way of the Bible when it comes we have a disagreement or a misunderstanding with a fellow brother or sister. A lot of times... We rub each other the wrong way. But how we deal with that makes all the difference in the world. And Satan means adversary because he's the ultimate enemy and adversary of everybody. I want to say this very firmly and forcefully. Satan has one agenda, and that is destroy you, your marriage, your loved ones, and everything about you. That is his number one goal. And as a believer in Christ, he has special eyes on you because if he figures he takes you down, he may take a few believers with you. People in ministry, Rashonda, if you get Rashonda to fall, she may take some of the youth with her. We're all the enemy of Satan. He is not your friend. He doesn't have your best uh, interest at heart, regardless of what the world tries to tell you. He is the enemy. He's the adversary. 
Now back in verse 2, it says he bound him, Satan, for a thousand years. Now that time period is mentioned twice in verses 1 through 3, and it's mentioned four times in verses 4 through 7. Makes it an important temporal designation. Now these are way, this is where three main schools of exotology, which means study of end times, split. Now there's more than this three. three. There's subgroups of every one, but I'll just give you the three main ones. The first one is premillennialism. It insists that the return of Christ will take place before the millennial begins. Those who hold to this view usually will follow a more literal translation of Revelation. Now, this is probably popular in the late 18th and beginning of 19th century. They thought that uh, Christ would come back and then the millennial would begin. Postmillennialism. Assumes that Christ will come after the events described in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. These that hold to this view generally expect the preaching of the gospel to improve the quality of life in this world, and they anticipate the return of Christ to be the climax. This was also popular until you had a bunch of wars happen. Well, apparently that ain't working. As the gospel goes out, thought the world would get better. You have to, now, there are some views in this kind of take a more of a utopia viewpoint. But there are some who think that uh, this millennial reign will happen after, Christ's return will happen after those things. And then you have amillennialism. Christ's thousand-year reign is merely symbolic of the spiritual kingdom at the right hand of God in heaven. Many suggest that the millennium is the present period of world history in which the gospel can be Spread freely, influence history by bringing people to faith in Christ. Those are three main different viewpoints of how the millennium will play out. Now, can I just caution you? These are good things to discuss. I'm not going to get into any more than that. It's a good discussion to have on a Sunday night at Table Talk. But do not miss the forest for the trees, dear beloved. The main point here is that there's two destinations that you may end up in all eternity. One is heaven and one is hell. There's no other place. And the Bible tells us how we get to heaven. And the Bible tells us what we do not do in order to go to hell. I mean, you understand which way you're going to go. These are good things to talk about, but not to fight over. In fact, there's an article in SBC Life, which is the Southern Baptist Convention's executive board publication. This particular article came out on June the 1st of 2014, entitled Southern Baptist and the Millennium. This is what it says, quote, proponents of each position affirms the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, that's good. All these viewpoints agree that the Scripture is inherent without error. It's the Word of God. And hardly anyone regarding differing positions on millennial is seen as an obstacle to cooperation in missions, theological education, evangelism, cultural engagement in the quote. In other words, this is not something we can just divide ourselves over. It's not worth departing ways because each position can be defended, be defended by Scripture. And in fact, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 does not address the millennial per se. In Article 10, it states in part, quote, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to all the earth, in the quote. Here's the whole point of the whole thing I just did. No one knows for sure exactly how it's going to go down. 
Is that pretty plain to the point? Now, there's, there's knowledge to be gained, some discernment and insight to be gained, but this is nothing worth splitting the church over. All right? I think I've belabored that point long enough. Look back in verse 3. He, the angel, threw him, Satan, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. Okay, he threw him in there. We understand he shut it, but was it mean that he sealed it? Well, if you recall, after Jesus' crucifixion, Joseph Arimathea went to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, and he took the body of Jesus down, prepared it for burial, and put, it, put the body of Jesus in his own tomb. Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, went to Pilate, if you recall, and warned Pilate, well, he taught when he was alive that he would rise again in three days, and we don't want anyone stealing the body and then declaring he rose from the dead. Now, the stone was heavy enough. You have to at least have two or three men to push that thing back and forth. But then he does something interesting. Pilate puts the seal on the tomb, which was a Roman seal. Now, that seal will not stop you from getting into the tomb. You could still roll the stone away, but you would break its seal. The seal was a warning based on established authority. Whoever broke that seal, in other words, would be going against Rome. And they'll be guilty of rebellion against Rome. Now, the seal of God on the abyss, since there's no higher authority than God, no one, no being, can lose Satan from the bottomless pit. He is prevented from deceiving the nations for 1,000 years. He cannot get out. Verse 3, it says, Until the thousand years, thousand years were completed, and after these things he must be released for a short time. Now he's bound. And as I prepared for this message, I thought, well, that'd be great. Jesus is coming back to rule. Satan is locked up. He can't deceive anybody. But then later in the passage, he comes out and he sees a bunch of people. So I'm thinking, well, he still comes out and is able to see people? But apparently, Jesus reigning will be a lot better than what we have today. Will be a lot better. Look in verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them. A judgment was given to them. A thousand years, once again, like I said, is when Christ shall live and reign on the earth. But these other thrones, and he tells us these people who are sitting on these thrones were given authority to judge. But then as you read the text, he gives us two more things that reveal their identity. Look with me. He sees the souls of those who are beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hand. And in verse 4 it tells us these ones have been beheaded. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, let's just back up. When Christ comes... Who was he accompanied with? The armies of heaven, right? Which are those who have gone on before. Those people who made a commitment to Christ and died in Christ. And the angels, the whole army. 
Now we read that these people who were beheaded, these are people who died during the tribulation, did not give up their faith. They testified who Jesus was. They take the mark. They didn't worship his image of the beast. And now they're raised up. And they're going to reign with him for a thousand years. Now look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. There's two resurrections happening here. Now certainly this second resurrection, if you will, is a reference to the unrighteous dead, the unbelievers. Because those who are alive and reigning with Christ for a thousand years is the first resurrection. Why do I say that? Well, Christ is described as the first fruits of the resurrection. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 23. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first, first fruits of those who are asleep. And the verse 23, Christ the first fruits after those who are Christ at his coming. Christ died, buried, and he rose again. There is a song uh, called So Will I, popular contemporary worship song. And it says, as you live, left the grave, grave behind, so will I. So when we go to the graveyard and we see all the tombstones, those who have died in Christ, that is not the end of the story. This is a place where the world looks at the cemetery and says that's the ultimate defeat. Game over, no more. But for those of us who believe in Christ, it's just a stepping over to all eternity. And really, it's a stepping over eternity for everybody. It just depends on where you're headed, either heaven or to hell. That's the reality of it all. Those who come with Christ are joined with the righteous dead of tribulation. This is not emphasizing necessarily the order, but life. Because the first resurrection is a resurrection to eternal life. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over those the second death, which is the lake of fire, has no power. That's the first resurrection. So if you look at that beatitude there, the second resurrection would mean those who are a part of it are neither blessed nor holy. Their death becomes an agonizing realization of eternity. They're raised to find out that now they're going to face all of eternity and torment and suffering. Let me stop right there. I can get a dictionary and a thesaurus and I can look at every English word to paint you a picture of what hell will be like. And I will still fall very short of the reality of it. We have been given the task, the church, the bride of Christ, to take the gospel into all the earth. Does it bother us? Bother is not a big enough word. Does our, stir our soul and heart enough to really pray for the lost? That no one should spend eternity in hell. In fact, the Bible tells us that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but to all come to repentance. Let's face it, I'm going to heaven not because I'm an American, not because I'm Caucasian, not because I'm a Southern Baptist, not because I'm a pastor. I'm going to heaven on one reason only, and Roger, you pointed out earlier, it's all because of Christ. If I'm going to boast in anything, let me boast 
in Him. Look at back in verse 6. Those a part of the first resurrection, it says they will be priests of God and of Christ. Let's think about a priest for a second. Going back to the Old Testament, a priest represented God to the people in His teaching. He would tell the people, instruct the people what God wanted from them, what they should do. But then again, he, he represented the people in front of God by sacrifice, uh, sacrifices and interceding on behalf of them. Now only the priests could go into the holy place. I'm a Gentile. If I lived back in those days, I wouldn't be standing at the sacred desk reading Scripture to you. I wouldn't be in the holy place. I wouldn't be in the courtyard. I'd be outside somewhere in the God-fear section, as they call the Gentiles who believe in uh, Yahweh. Out there. And I would trust the priests. I would tell them what a I needed, and they would go intercede on my behalf, make sacrifices on my behalf. I would provide the, the sacrifice, the, the sacrifice they go do it for me. But every New Testament believer, which most of you are, what I mean by a New Testament believer, someone who has confessed their sin, repented of it, trusted and put their faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, that you believe, yes, he came and lived the perfect life, he laid his life down willingly, he was put into the grave, he was dead, but on the third day he glorious rose again, and now he's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what I mean by a new Testament believer. You have personal access and able to experience fellowship with God. You don't need me. That's right, I just said it. You don't need me. Now, being a pastor, what am I supposed to do? Preach the word of God to the best of my ability. Praise God's direction. And equip you to do the work of ministry. And walk beside you. But you have access to God as an individual believer. So as a Gentile, instead of being outside the courtyard somewhere, not only I'm in the courtyard, not only can I get to the holy place, but I go in the holy of holies and experience God face to face. See, even back in the Old Testament time, only one person go in the holy of holies, and that was the chief, uh, excuse me, the high priest, once a year on Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, still in our calendars today. Only one time. But now for you and me, because of Christ, we can go right into the courtyard, right into the presence of the Almighty God. In fact, we came here this morning as we started to pray and sing songs. What are we doing? We're entering into the presence of God. When you pray, you're entering into the presence of God. Who do you have inside you? The Holy Spirit. Who's, who's God? How would you like... I think I've used illustration many times. Best way I know how to describe. How would you like tomorrow? We all got on a plane and we flew to Washington D.C. Limousines all picked us up and took us to the White House, and all of us had ten minutes in the Oval Office with the President, no interruptions, his full attention for just ten minutes. Now think about what we'd have to do in order to get that clearance. I mean, after all. 
We're just common folk. We're we're no senators here. No big donators of political process here. We're just ordinary citizens. How would you feel? How would you you get prepared for that day? Would you prepare for it? Would you try to present the best person you could be? What would you give for that? Here's the point. You have access to God who created all this, who allowed Joe Biden to be president in the first place. You can have access to God, and he invites you in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter what time it is. You have access to God. Now, as much as I experience God on this earth, as the Bible says, I see in part. I get glimpses of it. I can experience, oh, that's wonderful. But as Apostle Paul says, we learned in Bible school this morning, I see in part, but one day I'm going to know the whole thing just like I'm fully known. Can you imagine that day when we see everything that we've been thinking about and praying about? Can you imagine seeing what heaven's truly going to be like? Can you imagine seeing Christ and all his majesty and power? And you look at those nail prints in his hands and his feet and his side? Knowing that he did it all just for you? What I'm driving at is that this, having access to God and experience his fellowship, doesn't, it doesn't seem as credible to us as it should be. Because as, you know, one of the things we hold at Southern Baptist is a thing, our doctrine and teaching is based on this, it's called the priesthood of all believers. You don't have to come to me to confess your sins. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I can walk beside you, I can pray with you, I can laugh with you, cry with you, but I don't have any more standing with God. I don't, I don't have no more higher rank than you do. I have more responsibility simply because he's allowed me the privilege and honor to stand and to preach his word, his message, not my opinion, not what I think, but the truth. Look in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. Come out to see the nations which are on the four corners of the earth. As soon as Satan is released from his prison, he shows the true character of who he is. It goes right back to deceiving the nations from the four corners, which are the four corners of the earth, specifically Gog and Magog. And he's gathered them together for war, and the text tells us their number is like the sand on the seashore. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, Magog was a grandson of Noah. His descendants settled the far north of Israel, likely in Europe or northern Asia, Magog seems to be used to refer to northern barbarians, but also likely has a connection to Magog a person. And the people of that area were called skilled warriors, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 15. Now the reference here is to the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. After he sees the dry bones, the prophecy about the regathering of Israel, he sees the last day, a final assault upon Israel by Gog, and Magog. 
This demonstrates these people have the same rebuilding against God as those in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. It's similar to calling someone uh, today a, a, the devil. Now, we don't know the person is really the devil, but we say they have characteristics like a devil. So whoever these people are, they're an enemy. Oh, and I can't help think what's going on right now as Israel's being attacked. Multiple fronts are starting to open up. I don't know if you've seen the news. Just wondering, where are we at? In the time schedule right now. I can't get it all right now. I'd rather do that in a more casual setting, but I will tell you this it convinces me more and more that our time here is growing very, very short. They came up on the broad plain of the earth, verse 9, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, that might seem strange, a reference to a camp, but the armies of the Lord will be camped around. Who's the beloved city? Well, obvious, that would be Jerusalem. So the armies of the Lord are around Jerusalem. They're surrounding them. Now look at this. You got this. They said their numbers like the seashore. So they can be counted as who multiple, I mean, multitude of multitude of people surrounding this area. It looks like a battle about to go down. <laughs> but guess what? What seems to be that development suddenly changes. Look at verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Didn't get the fire one shot. Fire came down and devoured them all. And those deceived by the devil. It's time to deal with Satan once and for all. Look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan has been dealt with. The beast and the false prophet have been dealt with. You know, the New Testament is clear that originally hell was not created for humans. Rather, it was created for devil and his angels, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus speaking. Then he will say also to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, listen, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never intended for man to spend all eternity in hell. The lake of burning sulfur is referred to as Gehenna by the Lord himself. It is where those who reject the Lord will be tormented day and night. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor infamous, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, and some of you are like that. We don't deserve heaven but regardless of what we may be we may deserve those of us who have surrendered to christ put our faith in christ and we understand it's not because of who we are but what but whose we we are who we belong to not because of what we've done but because of what he has done we go to heaven i want to echo the words of first corinthians chapter 15 verse 58 
Therefore, my delivered, my beloved brethren, and may I add sisters, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Everything you do for God is never, never, never in vain. And though we not may see fruit of it on this side of it, eternity will yell it from the mountaintops. It's never in vain. See, the enemy wants us to give up. What's the use? I'm tired. It's my only day off. It's raining. I'm cold. I'm tired. We must be steadfast. We must not give up. Time is running short. You know, since the beginning of recorded history, like I opened up with, the world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. We have the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years, but a more glorious time is coming. A day of no more war, a day of no more assaults, abuse, hunger, hurt, pain, or panic. Sin will be totally eradicated. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 tells us that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Behold, the first things have passed away. Hmm. What a day that will be. What a day. Are you ready for that day? Are you going to be part of the first resurrection? Now, there are people who are saved in the tribulation. We know that. We've read about it. But it's going to be difficult. Because that tribulation is going to come, the Bible tells us, is far worse than anything this world has experienced throughout the whole course of human history. Why not Take a few minutes and make sure who you belong to. If you're not sure, I'll invite you to come up here today and let's make sure you're one of his. If you are one of his, now more than ever, you need to be involved in the most important mission there is. A mission that will impact all eternity. Pulling as many people as we possibly can out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's not me. It's not my preaching or my speaking abilities or what I can say. It's all the Holy Spirit moving and working. What is God asking you to do? We need more nursery volunteers. We need more Sunday school teachers. And I promise you, you show up on a Wednesday night, you'll be put to work if you like. All these things, as we try to reach out 
to this community, to this county, and to this state about the reality of who Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, I don't know. I don't have the gift of prophecy, but I can't help but think I'm going to be alive to see all this prophecy happen before my very eyes. And the question comes down to this, really, doesn't it? Do you believe it or not? I believe it to be true. With all my fiber of my being. Do I have my doubts? Yes. But I have faith. And faith is going forward with somebody even when you don't know everything. Even when you may have some doubts about how it's going to work out. I know God is able. Based on what I've seen in my past, seen what I'm in my present, and what he's promised to do in the future. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us things and told us things about what to expect. And as it begins to unfold, Father, we're, we're not that surprised. It concerns us, and at times, yes, Father, does frighten us, but you told us ahead of time what was going to happen. Father, we know we can trust you. You've proven yourself trustworthy. You're always faithful. You've proven that time and time and time again. Father, I, I beg of you, if there's anyone in the sound of my voice is not sure of where they'll spend eternity, I pray that they respond to your gospel. And for those of us who are as believers, may we all truly surrender everything to you. You didn't hold anything back from us. You've given us everything. Father, may we take that and proclaim it to the world. But this is coming. And coming soon. May your spirit continue to move and speak to us. And may we respond in obedience to your call that you place in.